Sonia Delgado had been fantasizing for a long time, plotting a way to start over. She and her husband had been unhappily married for almost 30 years. There were a lot of problems, but one of the biggest things was money. They never agreed about money. I fought about money almost all my life with him. Everything was a fight. Sonia says he had always been in charge of their finances, kind of by default. But the problem was that he wasn't very good at it. He had terrible credit. She felt like he was always spending way more than they could afford, month after month after month, to the point that they slipped into chronic debt. Their power was cut out at least once, and for a while, they had to rely on food stamps to take care of their three kids. She says she even hired an accountant to come up with a basic budgeting plan with her husband. But it ended the way it always did, in a screaming match. There was no communication. There was no logical interaction. Just yelling, and it was a mess. And after three decades, Sonia was done. It was 2010, and on the first week of summer vacation from her job as a high school teacher, she drove herself to the bank. She walked inside and asked the teller to close the joint account she had with her husband and to move all the money into a new account, in her name only. This was payday time for me. This was revenge time for me. And I was doing it very methodically, very quietly, and I had no fear about what I was doing. By this point, Sonia had been the breadwinner of the family for several years. So she was fed up that her husband was still the one calling the shots on how to spend and manage their money. He didn't find out about the account until weeks later. They were standing together in the kitchen one day. She was cooking when she turned to him matter-of-factly. I said I decided to open a brand new account for my paycheck. And I am going to be in charge of that money. Because you're not responsible with money, and that is my money. I mean, I could tell that that was not going to end well. She says he was really upset and confused and just agitated. This was the first big move Sonia made to take control of her life. Because separating her money from his money was all part of a larger plan to separate, well, everything. It wasn't long before Sonia had contacted a divorce lawyer. I had saved $2,500 in a matter of a couple of years. And it was, you know, like in a little drawer hidden where he couldn't find it. And I was saving that money for an emergency. And this divorce was an emergency. For weeks, she would make these secret calls to the lawyer from her car, always out of earshot of her husband. And once everything was in order, Sonia walked up to him one evening in the living room. She told him to turn down the TV volume. They needed to talk. I told him, I've decided to get a divorce and you're going to be getting papers next week. I was very succinct. I didn't give a lot of details. And he said, I'm shocked. He was sitting on one end of the couch. She was on the other. There was a dead silence. There was like a black hole suddenly between both of us. The conversation was over in less than 20 minutes. For a while, Sonia stayed out of the house. She says her husband was so angry that she felt unsafe. By the time she came back about a week later, he'd taken all of his stuff. He was gone. For the first time in her life, it seemed like her financial destiny was in her hands. Even though he left, I was kind of, I could not believe that the man finally is gone. You know, in my mind, Mm -hmm. I thought this is too good to be true. It's just too good. 
I'm Rima Khreis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. When Sonia decided to get divorced, she felt like she'd seized this new chance to reclaim her money, and by extension, reclaim her life. But soon, she'd find out that that freedom came with a big, never-ending condition, written right into the law. This week, we look at Sonia's battle against a law that keeps thousands of people forever tied to their exes. Sonia grew up in rural Puerto Rico in a middle-class family. Her community was very Catholic and conservative. So in high school, when she started dating this boy, no one had ever talked with her about sex or protection. And that's how Sonia found herself pregnant at age 14. She was at home one weekend helping her mom tidy the house when her boyfriend's mother showed up. And she said to my mom, we need to talk about something. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's kind of, there is like an eerie silence. She says, the fact of the matter is that your daughter is pregnant from my son, and I think they're going to need to get married. Again, Sonia was only 14 years old. Getting married would upend her entire life, her school, her friends, her future. She didn't understand what was happening. She says her mom was just screaming at her. Like, desobediente. Disobedient. Atrevida. Shameless. It was insulting, the the words that she used. Like, she was accusing me of doing something wrong on purpose, not seeing it as a mistake. But her mother was desperate, so she caved. She figured the best way to protect Sonia's reputation in their conservative town would be to go ahead and move forward with the marriage. I should have been getting ready for my quinceañera party. Instead, I was wearing a wedding dress. I did not plan. I didn't know what was going on. They just tossed me into this. Her mom signed a form granting permission for a judge to officiate the marriage, since Sonia was underage. The ceremony took place on the porch of her great-aunt's house, surrounded by plants and flowers. She wore a floral crown, and her husband was in a powder blue suit. It was like a a doll's wedding, like a wedding for a Barbie, like an imitation of the real thing. She says she was in total shock, just going through the motions, doing whatever the adults told her to do. In the end, her baby was born premature and died after a few days. But by then, the marriage was settled. And in her deeply religious community, divorce was just as unthinkable as having a baby out of wedlock. So Sonia stayed married. And this is the beginning of her money story. Because that same old-school belief system that told Sonia she needed to marry at 14 also told her that the man in a marriage is supposed to make the money and manage the money. Uh, He used to say that my money the money that I make was our money and that the money that he made was his money. I had no control over neither money, either his or mine, because when I made any money, I had to kind of submit it to him to do as he wanted. It was a clear-cut patriarchy. And after feeling like she'd majorly screwed up, Sonia just wanted to play by the rules to keep the peace. I know it sounds uh, pathetic. How did I let him take over my money? Now let's just go back to this is just in my situation. I feel trapped. I don't have anybody to talk to. I imagine that's the right way to do it. 
At the beginning of their marriage, Sonia was just trying to finish high school, and her husband was the one working. He had a part-time gig at a woodworking shop. But, of course, married or not, 16-year-old boys are not famed for their responsibility with money. He went to a car dealership and brought a brand new car where everything he made in a month would have to go to that payment. Over the years, the problems got worse and worse. They would fall behind on utility bills. Lots of red envelopes would come in the mail. Sonia ended up having a son and two daughters. And she often had to ask her mom and grandparents for help buying new clothes for them. We got to a point where there was a negative $700 a month. Mm. We were at a negative $700. And there was no savings at all. No savings. And at any point, did you talk with your mom or your grandma about all the strains on your marriage? (laughs) I couldn't. I couldn't because they wouldn't understand what I had to say. They, They wouldn't understand it. She tried to hold on to her childhood dreams. She'd always wanted to become an actress, to one day see herself on a big screen. So when they moved to Miami about five years after the marriage, she enrolled at a community college, studying TV and cinema production. She sent her resume and headshot around to some local agents, and she says she even landed a spot as an extra on Miami Vice. And, you know, there was like three opportunities that came along, and I started feeling better about myself. Mm -hmm. I I know I can do this. I know I'll be good. Um, And I was willing to work hard for it. But that would mean spending less time at her day job, a job her husband had gotten her at the same import-export company where he worked. Her husband said no. She had to stick to her day job. They moved around a lot, bouncing between Florida, New York, Puerto Rico. Sonia ended up getting her degree in education and landed a job as a high school Spanish teacher. But once they'd settled for good back in Florida, her husband had trouble holding down a job. He did find some work as a cabinet maker, but he got laid off, along with most of the company, during the 2008 recession. He filed for unemployment, And Sonia says he started to struggle with his health, with lung disease, body aches, depression. Eventually, he went on disability. Sonia had become the main breadwinner of the family. But still, her check went into that joint account that she says her husband controlled. The inertia of the marriage and the traumatic way it all began felt like a constant weight. Just the, you know, deep sadness I had, sad about my life, about how everything was just, like, destroyed in front of me. All of the dreams that I had, it was just depressing, and it made me so angry. And I would be angry and bitter. As months passed by, I got more and more bitter. I was just a a box of bitterness, Mm. and it didn't get any better. It kept getting worse. Sonia finally called the lawyer in 2012. She was in her early 40s with three grown kids. By that point, she said she'd started to feel physically sick. Muscle pains, headaches, stomach aches. Her body was telling her what she'd known deep down for a long time. This marriage needed to end. And this is where we found her at the beginning of this story. She had just told her husband she wanted a divorce and quickly left the house. I had my car parked outside. That day, I left it on purpose. I left it parked in front of the garage. I never put it in because I needed a quick way out. So at that point, I just grabbed my keys quietly. I got in my car and I had a backpack. 
and I had already called the, the Women's Violence Center in Ocala, Florida. And they gave me the specific directions on how to get there and not to tell anybody that I was going there. She threw her backpack in her red PT cruiser, pulled out of the driveway, and made her way onto the back roads. And you might think that this is a major low point for Sonia. And yes, she did feel scared driving at night after this huge thing had happened, just plunging right into the unknown. But as she drove towards the shelter, Katy Perry's song, Wide Awake, came on the radio, and Sonia was filled with this sense of exhilaration. I, wish I, knew then, but I, know now. I was singing along with that song because it was so perfect for the moment. <laughs> Divorce is always a big deal. But in Sonia's case, it's worth stressing that this divorce was a very big deal. Not just because it took courage to extract herself from a forced marriage or because it would defy the wishes of her conservative religious family. It was a big deal because this was Sonia's first ever real taste of autonomy. Imagine finding that your life is suddenly in your own hands for the first time when you're in your early 40s. I felt so at peace and I was so, felt so safe and just a sense of happiness. I cannot explain it. Mm-hmm. It was just like a spirit of happiness was filling me and I was starting to feel so healthy. Sonia eventually moved back into her house. Her husband had left for good. But a lot still needed to happen to finalize everything. She started the process in June of 2012. Paperwork, legal fees, figuring out the division of assets, not that they had much to divide. Over a year passed before she was finally sitting down in a mediation room with her lawyer to sign the papers. Sonia was in an office at a round table across from her lawyer. Meanwhile, her ex-husband and his lawyer were speaking in a separate room across the hall. The ex wasn't actually there. He was calling in from out of state. So two rooms, two lawyers, two exes. And then began this weird game of telephone, where Sonia's lawyer would go to the neighboring room to speak to her ex's lawyer, who would then name the demands for the divorce agreement. Then Sonia's lawyer would come back to her room to repeat the ex's demands before everything got put down on paper. My lawyer comes in and he says, this is what they're saying. There's a formula based on what you make and what he makes. And uh, he was just giving me all this legalese explanation. She's confused. She just wants to sign the paper and not be married anymore. What does how much money she makes have anything to do with it? So it wasn't until then that I first, in for the first time, I hear the word alimony. Alimony. That's when a court orders you to pay money to an ex-spouse after a divorce. It's also known as spousal support, or these days, spousal maintenance. It all means the same thing. Most divorces don't involve alimony at all. But if you make more money than your spouse in a marriage, then you can be legally obligated to support them financially for some period of time after divorce. It's a shocker. It's a shocker. I wasn't expecting. You know how much money they wanted me to give them? $800. What do you mean? $800 a month? (gasps) Yes. That's ridiculous. And it was permanently, meaning for life. Sonia was being told that she would have to send her ex a paycheck every month for the rest of her life. In Florida, as in most states, alimony is determined mostly by one person's need and another person's ability to pay. Her ex was on disability and out of work. She had a salary. And even though it was a modest salary, 
it was a lot more than what he had. I almost fall off that chair, really. I, I was in shock. I said, but how, how could this be if I barely, I barely make any living? At that time, Sonia earned about $42,000 a year as a high school Spanish teacher. The alimony her husband was asking for would amount to nearly a third of her take-home pay. I tell my lawyer there's no way I can pay him $800. I don't have that kind of money. I owe most of my money. Then my lawyer stood up, went back to the writing table, and came back to me. And he says, listen, he's not asking for anything else, just this permanent alimony. She felt cornered. She needed to speak to her ex directly. I got so angry at him. And uh, I stood up. I went across the hall. She told his lawyer to pass her the phone. And I spoke to him in Spanish. I told him... Tú sabes que yo no tengo esa cantidad de dinero. Tú sabes que yo no puedo ni siquiera pagar el plan médico. She told him, you know I don't have that amount of money. You know I can't even afford the medical plan. They went back and forth like this. Her ex on speakerphone, his lawyer in the room. He finally said, fine, let's lower it to $600 a month. And we can renegotiate for a smaller amount once a year. I said, that is still too much money and you know I cannot pay it. I was so mad and I could not hide it. But he would not budge below $600. Sonia was out of options. I just stormed out of that office and went back to my round table with the lawyer. It was just, you know, it was just a, a dead end for me. There was nothing I could do. So now you were going to pay him $600 a month indefinitely. $600. That was the money I needed for... So many things. I wanted to start prepaying the house mortgage. I wanted to start saving money. I wanted to start my doctoral degree at UF. Mm. I wanted to uh, travel to go see my mom in Puerto Rico. It was as though this divorce, the very thing Sonia thought would finally give her her life back, Now it was tethering her to everything she wanted to leave behind. She'd spent decades feeling suffocated by a system that told her that her husband was supposed to be the money boss. And now, in what felt like a twisted irony, she'd be expected to step into the quote-unquote man's role, to be his financial lifeline for the rest of her life. On July 20th of 2013, Sonia sat down at her kitchen table to write the first of a never-ending pile of alimony checks. She sealed the envelope and dropped it in the mailbox. When you made that first payment, what did it feel like in your body? Uh, It felt like I've been just um, beaten up with a bat. It was just like an insult. I was so humiliated that I had to do that. I could not believe it. And I felt like I shouldn't send it. But of course, if I don't send it, I would be in contempt of the court and I could even go to jail. For Sonia, the alimony fuels this old bitterness, makes it impossible to move on. And it's not just her own situation she's mad about. She doesn't think anybody should be getting alimony for life. Why do I have to pay another adult past the age of 18? And this adult has nothing to do with me anymore. And there's already a lot of acrimony between us. Why just make us hate each other even more? 
After the break, we look at how alimony has shapeshifted over time, plus Sonia's next move. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Usually, when you hear about alimony, it is not in the most sympathetic context. We trash it, make fun of it. Yo, women, y'all got it good, boy. When it's time to get a divorce, women got it made. They go to court, start talking that shit. Your honor, I'm used to this, I'm used to that, I'm accustomed to this. We follow scandalous celebrity divorce settlements and gossip about them with our friends. Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas have finalized their divorce settlement after 18 years of marriage. And it's been reported that Melanie will get $65,000 a month in spousal support. That's a lot that's, of money. That's a lot, a lot of, of money, money honey. <laughs> People have big feelings about alimony. And because of that, it's morphed into this cartoonish stereotype. The rich husband who leaves his wife for his secretary and now has to pay up. But alimony and the history of it, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It goes back to almost since the beginning of law. It's actually written in the Code of Hammurabi, which, if you don't know, is an ancient Babylonian legal text that was etched into these huge pillars of basalt around 1750 BC. Right there, literally written in stone, is the first known mention of alimony. Men supported women because women didn't have the freedom to support themselves, and that applied even after a divorce. It was designed to prevent women from falling into poverty, and it was designed to last forever. But obviously, the world has changed a lot since Babylonian times. Just out, women are very close to outnumbering men in the American workforce for the first time Many in American history. Women now making more money than their spouses, becoming the, the major traditional roles of the modern-day family is changing now. And with that, alimony has become less gendered. It's less about protecting the woman, and more about protecting whichever spouse makes less money. And that can make a lot of sense, right? People in marriages usually decide how to divide and conquer. Like, say you decided to make sacrifices to your career. You moved to another city for your spouse's job, and you were the one doing a lot of the unpaid labor, taking care of the kids, cleaning, cooking. And then life happens, and you get divorced. Now you're in your mid-50s, and because of all the sacrifices you made, your earning potential has taken a huge hit. Alimony, at least for a while, can be a lifeline. It can give the person who did all of that unpaid labor or maybe didn't make as much money the ability to make up for lost time and build their own career, sometimes from scratch. It's basically society's way of preventing divorcees from falling into financial ruin. And in most cases, after a certain period of time, it ends. And a lot of people can get behind that concept of alimony when it's temporary. But what a lot of people can't get behind is lifetime support, when alimony is permanent. 
Which is why over the last few decades, most states have actually been like, no, we're not doing permanent alimony anymore. A bill has been introduced in the assembly that calls for eliminating permanent alimony. Now the push for alimony reform has made its way to Minnesota. A lawmaker wants to update the law, calling it outdated and says some permanent payments are unfair. We certainly want to encourage folks to be getting to a place where um, their divorce can actually be final and they don't necessarily have to But a few states have held on to the old ways and still have permanent alimony on the books. Like Florida, where Sonia lives. Which is how Sonia found herself in this situation. Stuck, tied to her ex-husband indefinitely, realizing that her future was probably going to look a lot different than what she'd expected. So I kind of had this big dream of becoming a college professor and getting, you know, tenure. And for years, she tried to still pursue that dream, despite the monthly payments to her ex. She applied to a Ph.D. program at the University of Florida. And in the spring of 2015, she got an acceptance letter in the mail. But then when I sat down and did numbers and uh, I didn't want to get in debt, they were offering me a student loan. And I thought about it and I knew that a student loan would just take away my peace. Uh, at that Mm. time because I had this big obligation of paying this alimony permanently. Sonia was barely making ends meet. Already, more than half of her paycheck was going towards her mortgage, and her son even had to step in to start paying for her phone bill. She withdrew her application. I thought, I'm going to have to give up this dream for the time being um, because I, I cannot go back to that situation of knowing that I owe money. The financial strain was one thing, but the physical act of having to send your ex-husband a paycheck every month... It doesn't bring any closure. You feel like... It it makes you feel like this nightmare is not over. It wasn't until 2017, about five years after her divorce that Sonia tried to take matters into her own hands. It all started when she was sitting at home one day in her living room, reading an article about alimony. The article referenced this new organization of permanent alimony payers in Florida and how the group is pushing for legislation to get rid of lifetime alimony for good. Reading this, Sonia perked up. So I reached out to them. I emailed them. I said, I want to get involved in this. She started connecting with folks in the group, with people in similar situations as her. And eventually, one of the group's leaders emailed her with a request. He asked me if I would be willing to write or talk or call or represent myself, um, my situation, and say my story. I said, absolutely, yes. Sonia had found a group of people who wanted to rewrite the rules. And she wanted in. So that October, she drove three hours north to Tallahassee to testify in support of a bill that would end permanent alimony. The bill would keep short-term temporary alimony intact, but it would put an end to the eternal-till-death-do-you-part alimony that was keeping Sonia and many others like her tied to their exes. Sonia walked up to the state legislature building with its big white columns, long staircase, and American flag. And how did it feel? Were you nervous? No, I was angry. Because I could not believe that smart people that no law and justice could be putting people in this situation and thinking that it's right for Mm. someone to pay forever to another person. Sonia stepped inside the legislative room. 
The lawmakers were all seated at a long table at the front. One of them called her up. Public testimony. She walked up to the podium wearing a gray suit jacket and pulled out a piece of paper. As a teenager, I was faced with an unintended pregnancy, which unfortunately misled me to marry the father of my child at a very young age. Despite his irresponsible and abusive behavior... This was not the first time this fight was being waged. Back in 2013, a similar bill to end permanent alimony actually passed the Florida State House and Senate. But the governor ended up vetoing it after a women's group of alimony recipients flooded him with angry letters. It's still far more typical for men to be paying alimony to women than what we see with Sonia's situation. Then, three years later, another bill made its way through the state legislature— This time, permanent alimony payers and recipients literally squared off outside of the governor's office. They started yelling at each other, shoving and name-calling. There were people in Sonia's situation, mostly men, arguing that it shouldn't be on them, that their exes can make their own money. There's no reason why divorced women cannot go work unless they're disabled or some extenuating circumstances where they're taking care of a disabled child. And in fact, there were some people with that kind of circumstance, and they were fighting against the bill, arguing that lifetime alimony is crucial for their basic survival. So now I'm 56 years old, and I have to have my lifetime alimony, and the judge saw it that way because I am partially disabled, but I have never worked. You can't get disability unless you've worked. Where I will end up is on welfare. Each person there, like Sonia, had their own complicated backstory. The governor vetoed that bill a second time, keeping permanent alimony intact in Florida. Three years after that, it was Sonia's turn. As she finished her testimony in support of yet another bill, she folded up her notes and walked back to her group of comrades. She felt hopeful, full of momentum. But then days and weeks passed, and that third version of the bill never even ended up making it on the calendar. So what did it feel like when that bill failed? Oh, so frustrating. So frustrating and disappointed. It makes me feel I want to leave Florida behind. This politics is just so difficult to understand. It shouldn't be so complicated, but it is. But of course, the bill failing was a win for Sonia's ex-husband and people in his situation people who can barely afford basic necessities after a divorce. We reached out to Sonia's ex multiple times, but weren't able to reach him. But both Sonia and her son say he's still on disability and doesn't work. For alimony recipients who are trying to get back into the workforce, it can still be tough. Like, even if you enroll in one of the gazillion programs that help people re-enter the workforce, when you're middle-aged and competing against younger candidates for entry-level jobs, well, your chances aren't great. And while alimony has gotten less gendered, women are still much more likely to find themselves in this position. Sonia has heard it all before, but she still draws a hard line. I believe that a woman living under those circumstances where she's being 100% supported, I believe there should be some transition pay so that she can get her business in order. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be lasting forever. It's true that lifetime alimony payments can become a real strain. We've talked to people whose payments mean they can never retire. And payers argue it creates a disincentive for their exes to ever get remarried, because if they did, they could get less or no alimony at all. There are reports of payers fleeing the state to avoid getting arrested for outstanding balances. 
We even heard about one guy who left the country and set up a website teaching other payers how to essentially disappear themselves if they get desperate enough, an option referred to as Plan B in some alimony payer circles. These days, after several years of negotiating her alimony payment, Sonia's monthly checks to her ex have gone from $600 to $350, a pretty big drop. But she resents still being tethered to him in this way. Okay, so when will you be finally free? When they change the law. Or when he or I die. We're not here to say whether lifetime alimony should or shouldn't exist. I can see it making sense in some cases, and I can also see it feeling perverse in others. And honestly, if you sit with some cases long enough, you can likely be convinced of either side. It feels like a thought experiment in perspective. Usually, both sides are adamant that they're the ones who've been wronged. And soon, we may not even be having this debate. Like, yeah, alimony for life is still a thing in Florida and in a handful of other states. But generally speaking, it's on its way out. Alimony will likely keep getting shorter in duration and lesser in amount. And I'm not sure what that says about us. Maybe it means that we've become a more fair society that gives people in any stage of their life a chance to make their own living. Or maybe reduced alimony means we've just become less generous. More fair or less generous. How you see it depends on which seat you're in. And as any divorce couple will tell you, everyone sees things differently. All right, that is all for this week's show. As always, if you want to drop us a note with any thoughts or comments or anything on your mind, you can email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, if you haven't signed up for our newsletter yet, you should do that. We've got some great recommendations on things to read and watch and listen to. You can sign up for that at marketplace.org slash comfort. Our team is me, Rima Hreis, Donna Tam, Peter Balanon-Rosen, Camila Kerwin, and Phoebe Unterman. Camila Kerwin lead produced this episode. Megan Dietry is our senior producer. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Serena Chow is our intern. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. And our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Sue Moss, Jan Killily, Tim Kruger, Elizabeth Lindsay from the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, and Michael Bueller from Florida Family Fairness. This is Uncomfortable is funded in part by the Cy Sims Foundation, which supports advances in education, scientific research, and the arts. All right, I'll catch y'all next week. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.